Today's reading is Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was David, uh, Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. 
When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Sirius the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I began this series back in September, I had uh, no idea how timely this series would be. It feels like the message of Daniel is addressing the chaos and the unraveling that's currently taking place in our culture that's only being heightened by this presidential uh, election. And even as we're two days away from this historic vote, instead of just kind of casually coasting into the, the voting booth, it feels like we're being bombarded with fresh revelations and and bombshells that are fomenting turmoil and uncertainty in our culture. And it's raised the possibility, at least to me, that this chaos will extend way beyond November 8th. In other words, our voting will not end it. And it raises a question, to me at least, is this, is this condition terminal? Is our cultural condition terminal? And if you've been part of this series, you've heard me refer to the 20th century historian Arnold Toynbee, a British historian who, in his book, A Study of History, raised the question, once a civilization begins to decline, can it recover, can it revive? Or is it inevitable that all civilizations must decline without reversing? And he says that it's possible for a civilization to recover and to revive, but that possibility depends upon a creative minority. And he goes on to talk about the creative minority as a group of people who are a minority, but they resist the impulse to separate, to engage in self-protection, to, to isolate, and they resist the other impulse of syncretizing, of assimilating to the culture, of just fitting in and going with the flow of the culture instead of, instead of 
offering a creative alternative. I've read this quote before by Jonathan Sachs, and I want to read it again because I think it reminds us again of the creative minority. Becoming a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. So the creative minority resists the impulse to separate, it resists the impulse to syncretize. Instead, it remains connected to the culture while at the same time being distinct from the culture so as to make a positive contribution. The Jewish people are history, have a history of doing this well. But Toynbee goes on and he says, he says in his writing that if there is no creative minority, then there's no example for the dominant majority to imitate. This is a piece that I haven't brought to you before. Toynbee summarizes the nature of the breakdown of civilizations as follows. First of all, there's a failure of creative power in the minority. So you have the minority, but it's not functioning as a creative minority. And one of the things that he says in history is that it's only as a creative minority is a creative minority that then the dominant majority culture has something to imitate. That's what turns a culture around. That's what turns a civilization around is when the creative minority offers something to the dominant majority to imitate, to provide a different way of being in the world. So if there is no creative minority, then there is no imitation that's possible. Number two, an answering withdrawal of mimesis, that means imitation on the part of the majority. And finally, a consequent loss of social unity in the society as a whole. And certainly we're seeing that in spades with the division in the, in, that's occurring in our, in our culture today. So I've suggested all along in this series that I think that the American, our nation and our culture is at a crossroads. And I'm, I've also suggested to you very strongly that I believe the American church is also at a crossroads. And I think the question is, will we fall back, will the church fall back in self-protection and isolation, seeking to recover the glory of some idealized past? And certainly you can find churches that that's what they're all about. But I think that maybe the larger question for us is, will the people of God continue to be assimilated by the dominant culture? Just going with the flow, reflecting the values and the lifestyle the cult of the, and the ways of the culture. And kind of connected to that, as I've said before, will we, will the church in America seek to just continue to be relevant and say to the, the dominant culture, see, we're just like you. And they say, yeah, we know, we assimilated you a long time ago. There's nothing distinct about you. You have nothing to offer us that's distinctive. But we're like you. Yeah, we know that. We've assimilated you. Or will we see the opportunity that history is offering to us? And I think that history is offering to us a distinct opportunity, and that is to be a creative minority. To remain connected to the culture and yet distinct in order to make a positive contribution. And this is what this story in Daniel 6 is about, and this is what the book of Daniel is trying to capture. What does it mean to remain faithful to God when the currents and the pressures of our culture are trying to push you away from faithfulness to God? God? When the pressures of the culture are trying to get you to abandon loyalty to God. So I'd like to invite you to open up to Daniel chapter 6, if you would please, page 743 in the blue Bibles underneath, or turn on your app, 
to, uh, to Daniel chapter 6, please. And it opens against the background. You've already heard it read, and I'm simply going to make some historical comments. I'm not going to go through it verse by verse, but I'll make some background comments in order to possibly illuminate it a little bit, and then I'm going to ask the so what question, okay? So it, it would help if you have your text open to look at the text. It opens against the background of a change of government in Babylon. Darius the Mede is in power, and in the, the chapter 5 ends in 531 with Darius receiving the kingdom from Belshazzar, Belshazzar, who's a king of Babylon who dies. The Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians in 539 B.C. Now, since it was the largest empire that the world had seen to that point, there's a need for urgent organization in that empire. I want to show you a map. Uh, if you can see it in the back, uh, the Persian Empire ex- extends all the way over to Greece, all the way down into Egypt, and all the way over to the border of India. Okay, so imagine you have just conquered that massive amount of space, and now you're left with the question, how do we organize ourselves? We had a similar situation when the U.S. invaded Iraq, and we were faced with that same question. What do we do now to govern in a nation that essentially that we have conquered? It's a huge task. And so that's why you see the organizational details in the first five verses of chapter 6. It's about figuring out how do we offer an efficient organization and give oversight. And that's why you have these, these, this term satraps. Uh, those are people, there was 120 of them that Daniel says that governed these provinces. They divided the kingdom up into provinces and they put these provincial governors in place and they call them satraps. And that's all part of decentralizing so that they can have an efficient uh, oversight. So Daniel, as we meet Daniel in this text, he's now over 85 years old, but he again distinguishes himself in civil service. He rises out, he distinguishes himself in, in, in his government service. And the king's intention to promote him over the others is leaked. And that ends up stirring up jealousy among the people who are also in places of public service. And a plan is hatched to block his promotion. Now, Daniel's plotters see where he is vulnerable. He believes in being faithful to God instead of human beings when those two are made to conflict. If you listen to the text when it was being read, or if you're looking down at the text, the hostility that these people have toward Daniel is not religious in nature. It's not because they're against religion. It's just that they happen to know that Daniel's religious commitment is significant to him, and so that becomes the point of attack for them. So they appeal to the king to issue a decree in which the king is the only legitimate representative of any deity for 30 30 days. That's kind of an odd thing if you think about it, but yet if you think about the ancient Near East, the king always represented the deity or himself took on uh, the characteristics of, of a god. The scene now shifts to Daniel's home in Daniel, or excuse me, in uh, Daniel 6, verse 10. And it's his regular habit to pray. That's what the text says. In other words, he's not flaunting rebellion. He's not saying, okay, I heard this decree, now I'm going to come, come back to my home and basically say, see, take this. He's doing what he's always done in the past. And the fact that the windows are open also indicate that he's also not hiding it. It's business as usual for Daniel. Now, if you're listening to the text or if you're looking down at the text, why does he bow toward Jerusalem? 
Why does he bow towards Jerusalem? And a little bit of background on this too. Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple, had this phenomenal prayer of dedication. And in the midst of this prayer of dedication, he anticipated the situation in which Daniel and the people of God found themselves. This is 1 Kings 8, 35 to 36. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place, there it is, and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. And so Daniel is doing what Solomon had said to do, and that is when Israel would find themselves in captivity because of their disobedience, as those who trusted in God's promise to forgive and to restore, that trust would be demonstrated in praying three times a day toward Jerusalem. So Daniel is showing his, his trust in God's promise that had been revealed through Solomon's prayer. But notice his prayer, verse 10. Look down at the text. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So notice, he knows the decree has been issued and he comes and he prays and he gives thanks. He gives thanks. He doesn't say, oh God, rescue me, but he gives thanks. And his thanks express his confidence that the living God knows his situation. The living God knows his peril. And he's confident that he already has a way to preserve him through it. There's that kind of trust that Daniel's exhibiting. So when Daniel's plotters report back to the king that Daniel is violating this new law, Darius is dismayed in verse 15. Those are the words that are used. He wants to save this wise elderly Jewish man, but he's trapped by his unchangeable decree, and he has to go through with it. Look at verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Now, given the language, the reason why I read that again was because many of you, perhaps, if you've grown up in a church, are familiar with this story, and the focus is on the lion's den. But if you listen to the language, if you look at the language that was used in this text, there's something else going on here besides just deliverance from a lion's den. This is what is known, this is what is known in the ancient Near East as a trial by ordeal. A trial by ordeal. So this scene can be viewed as a trial by ordeal rather than an execution because an execution doesn't have this kind of time element involved that's in play here in this text. What's a trial by ordeal? It was used in the ancient Near East. It was typically used of people who were suspected of being guilty of a crime, but their guilt was uncertain. 
So the typical trial by ordeal was to throw someone in a river. And if he or she died, it meant they were guilty. Not that they couldn't swim, but rather that they were guilty. <laughs> I thought about that all week. Like, that's just so strange. If they did survive, then it meant that they were innocent and they were set free. Now, lest you think that I'm completely making this up, in Numbers chapter 5, there's one incident of a trial by ordeal in the Old Testament. It has to do very tremendous details about a woman who is suspected of being adulterous. And it goes through this whole list of, how, of this ordeal that is, that is then carried out in order to determine her guilt or her innocence. The theology behind the ordeal is that God, who knows the heart in a way that human judges don't or can't, will see that the proper verdict is accomplished. So here, Daniel's survival, and if you listen to the language of what I just read, Daniel's survival is proof of his innocence. And that's why he says to the king, I'm innocent. He survived the trial by ordeal, which means that he is innocent. That's why the king is waiting to see the outcome. Will he survive the trial by ordeal? Will he be vindicated? Will he be proven to be innocent? It's also worth noting that Daniel's not preserved from the lion's den but rather finds that God is with him there, and Darius rejoices. So the story begins and it ends with Darius issuing a decree, and we learn from Darius what he has learned from Daniel's deliverance. In verse 26, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so he sends a decree that everyone should respect and honor Daniel's God throughout the empire. And then it ends in verse 28 by telling us that Daniel doesn't just survive, but he prospers. He prospers. Which is a reminder to us, or should be a reminder to us, that God is able to take care of his people in the most dire circumstances. And that's something that we shouldn't just skate over real quickly. God is able to take care of his people in the most dire of circumstances. Okay, so here's a so what question. I want to end with a so what question. So what difference might this make to Christians who are seeking to live as a creative minority in our culture today? There's two things. First is this. I think that it reminds us again of this reality. That in spite of present appearances... God is in control. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Regardless of what history might bring before us, regardless of the, the, the things that might produce fear and anxiety in history as we encounter them, even today, whether it's elections, economic meltdowns, plotting, hacking, conspiracy theories, wars and rumors of wars, that God is present and he is still in control. Would you say that with me? For those of you who are kind of just like, oh, my coffee's just now hitting, all right? <laughs> Let's say that together. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. Now, one more time with gusto. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. That thing needs to be put on a three-by-five card and stuck above your right by your mirror, when you get up in the morning to look at that first thing and say to yourself, in spite of present appearances, God is still in control. And then go out with your day with that knowledge and with that assurance. That would be something really positive. 
to at least get your day started. And that's what Daniel is telling us. But there's a, all, there's a second thing that I think that, that is offered to us as a so what, and, and it's this, that there's power in quiet faithfulness. There's power in quiet faithfulness. Now let me develop that just very quickly. Daniel 6 parallels Daniel 3. That's the incident where Nebuchadnezzar is demanding that everybody worship this golden image. So Daniel 6 parallels Daniel 3, but it's not repetition. In Daniel 3, it's about how the faithful refuse to participate in idolatrous religious practices. In other words, they're saying, this is what we won't do. And then you come to Daniel 6, and it's about how the faithful refuse to refrain from proper worship of God. This is, this is what we won't stop doing. What we won't do, what we won't stop doing. And both of those things are to mark the people of God. The created minority is a created minority because it understands what it won't do and what it won't stop doing. I was talking to um, a pastor in New York City a couple weeks ago. His name's John Tyson. He leads uh, uh, just a vibrant church planting movement in New York City called Trinity Grace. He's an Aussie, a phenomenal speaker, and just a, just a dynamic guy. And so I was calling him about something else that I wanted to talk to him about. And in the course of that, he made this comment about the difference between New York City and Southern California in terms of doing ministry and pastoring. And he said to me very bluntly, he says, oh yeah, he says, Southern California is much more difficult than New York City. And having planted a church in New England and been in the New York City area, I was interested as, why is that? He says, because of the high level of cynicism that's in the Southern California culture. He says that people in Southern California are very quick to deconstruct everything. He says, but then they stand in the rubble and they don't offer a positive alternative. That stuck with me. In other words, within our culture, we have this impulse to say, this is what I won't do. That comes natural to us, but it's in the form of deconstruction, not in the form of being distinct and saying, because of loyalty to God, this is what I won't do. It's just a general, this is what I won't do. You understand what I'm saying? And on the other side, what's missing is this piece, this is what I won't stop doing out of loyalty to God. And that's what makes a created minority a created minority. It's a group of people who understand what they won't do out of loyalty to God and what they won't stop doing out of loyalty to God. So a Christian created minority is distinct by the commitment to non-negotiables that demonstrate loyalty to God. And one of Daniel's was his prayer three times a day, declaring his confidence in God and in his promises. So my question to you and to us is this. Listen to me. I'm almost finished. What are the non-negotiables that distinguish you as a Christian? What are the non-negotiables that distinguish you as a Christian? That you'll remain faithful to practice no matter what. And I'm not talking about beliefs. 
Because James 2.19 says that the demons believe that God is one and they shudder, they tremble. James goes on to say that beliefs are demonstrated in one's actions, James 2.17 and 26. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that it's easy to call him Lord, Lord, but the question is, what is coming out of your life? Are you doing the will of the Father? He ends the Sermon on the Mount with hearing and doing versus hearing and not doing. So one's beliefs are demonstrated in one's actions. The Bible is clear on that. So what will you remain faithful to practice no matter what? On a personal level, I'll share one of the things for me. One of the non-negotiable practices that for me is an identifying marker of a follower of Jesus is generosity, and tied to that is hospitality. And the reason why I want to practice that is out of the idea that as a creative minority, I want to be part of a creative minority that offers something to the culture that is compelling. This is what I won't stop doing, is generosity and hospitality. This is me speaking, okay? So I'm not asking you to do anything, so if you're hearing me say that I'm about ready to ask you to do something, I'm not at all, okay? I'm just talking about myself. So for me, that is a very, very compelling thing that I think to offer to our culture because I think it's an an attempt, my personal opinion is, that it's an attempt to address the epidemic of loneliness that's in our culture and is only increasing. And I think it's also part of, at least my vision, is of trying to rebuild lives through family and through a table. Now, who determines that? Who determines whether I'm generous or whether I'm hospitable? I can say that I am. I'm generous. I'm hospitable. But the question is, has anybody experienced that from me? You see, because it's relational, then it's the people who receive it who determine whether or not that statement is true, whether that's true about me or of us. So my question is to you is, what, is it, what are the non-negotiables that distinguish you, that you will not refrain from practicing because you want to show loyalty to God? And then finally, I want to finish with this question. What about us as a collective creative minority? This is where I'm, this is where I'm, I'm not preaching anymore. I'm just absolutely talking to you. I really think we have an opportunity. I think we are sitting on something that we will look back in time and wonder if the window opened and we missed the opportunity. I really do. I've been waiting 26 years, continually hoping that maybe God in his providence would give some window of opportunity in human history so we don't just keep on doing the church thing and become irrelevant to ourselves and irrelevant to the culture, but that we have something distinct to offer the culture because the culture is collapsing. And I think the window of opportunity is opening, and the question is, will we see it? And I think this is one of the questions. What about us as a collective group? Will we be a creative minority, and will there be something collective about it? Can we or will we agree on something that can be a distinctive marker of our loyalty to Jesus? Collectively. In other words, what might we want? We want to be an identifying practice that marks us as a community seeking to be a creative minority. In other words, we would say to people, this is a non-negotiable practice for us as a community of Christ followers. 
See, I've never been in a church that had that collective consensus. Especially in Southern California, church is a collection of individuals. Not that they're bad, but there's not a collective shared consensus of this. These are the practices that mark us as the people of God, that mark our loyalty to God, that we together will embrace and will commit ourselves to doing. But I'm telling you, I think it could be transformative for our future. I really do. If we could, if that's something we wanted to do, to decide on what are the, maybe it's six or seven practices that would mark us out that we would do together, we would commit to do as individuals and do together. I think it's in that practice that something then emerges. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know that in the practice that God can use it and do something with it. And it's that posture, it's that posture that has, throughout church history, throughout history, has created this creative minority where God has used something in a tremendous way. So I'd be open to hearing your responses to the question just because I can't make anybody have those thoughts or desires or decisions. I certainly would be interested in having a conversation and seeing if that's something that some of us want to do together and see where that might lead us. Thank you for listening today. Appreciate it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the Grace community. Thank you for the the lives that are here and the people who love each other so well and love people around them, for the many ways that they're bringing their creativity to the culture, the way they're bringing transformation to the culture in their jobs and in their families and their marriages, in a host of other ways through their, their, through their, their just of giving themselves to people. Thank you. I consider it a privilege to be part of this. But I also ask that you would, Lord, you would show us what it is that you want for us for the we, and show us how we might embrace this opportunity to be a creative minority, to not shirk back and say, well, we're not that big, or we're not a mega church, or we're not famous, or whatever, but rather to simply trust that you are here and you want to use us. So I ask that you would stir us afresh. May we be your people collectively wrestling with this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.